Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. As last week, Gretchen and I were down at the annual meeting of our denomination and uh, enjoying some time with the wider family of uh, faith, but um, we always miss being with you. I want to remind you this morning that we are in a series called Earthy Spirituality, and we are looking at the life of David. And just in case some of you are uh, the more chronological type, we are not doing this chronologically. We're jumping all over the place. So I started at the beginning of the story, as one should. But then last week, Peter jumped way ahead to when David uh, brought the ark to Jerusalem. And now we're going back to uh, the story of David and Goliath. So we'll be jumping around a little bit, but all of these stories coming from the life of David this summer. So we hope that you will engage. If you want to read along at home and kind of just kind of uh, soak the story in, I encourage you to read through First and Second Samuel. That's where we'll be spending most of our time. And uh, you can just get a sense of uh, kind of the epic nature of the David uh, narrative in the scriptures. So this morning... We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to read 1 through 11, and then I'm going to jump ahead to verse 16. So um, it reads like this. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Then jumping ahead to verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. One of the things I like to do in my uh, spare time or when I'm out and about doing things is uh, photography. I used to have like the, you know, the DSLR, the expensive camera, but over the, over the years as uh, phone cameras have increased in quality so much, I just got rid of that and now I just use my phone. But 
One of the things I learned is I was trying to kind of get better at taking good photos was this idea of filling the frame. And so when you take a photograph, as you, at least with the old school cameras, you would look through the viewfinder. Now you hold your phone up, same idea. But you want to pay attention to what's filling your frame. Like how many family pictures have been ruined when you have, you know, um, the, the people you want in there, but also off to the side you have some, you know, garbage can or some distracting uh, other feature of whatever was around you. So you want to pay attention to what's filling your frame. And you want to pay attention to where your subject is in that frame. And so the frame really is just a boundary for what the lens is actually seeing. Right? So we want to pay attention to what it is that we're focusing our attention on. And what I've kind of learned is that we, as human beings, we have a tendency in life to not pay attention to or to take for granted what is filling our frame, what it is that we are focusing on. Because all of us, have a frame that we see things through. We all have a way of viewing the world. And now this frame of ours is formed by all kinds of things. It's formed by our upbringing, our family of origin. It's formed by um, what I have, and I've talked about this before, but what I, uh, are our actual beliefs versus our stated beliefs. You remember this? Our actual beliefs are the beliefs that we actually engage in life. Our stated beliefs are the ones we say we believe. So in other words, uh, another way to say that would be, um, there was a story that I came across years ago of a, a consultant who was hired by a church to come in and discern what was going, help them discern what was going on in their body and how they might better engage their community. And, and this church had just spent a lot of money remodeling some of the rooms in the church. And uh, they recarpeted the children's area. And so as this consultant was interviewing uh, the folks who volunteered in the children's area, um, he learned, he talked to one woman who said, you know, it's great. He said, you have such a beautiful space. She said, yeah, it's wonderful. We love it. It looks so great. It's so warm and inviting. But it's the strangest thing. The week after they put in the new carpet, all of our Play-Doh disappeared. And, um, and so then as the consultant, you know, kind of, talked with people and unwound this, he found out that the Play-Doh had been removed because if it gets in the carpet and dries, then it ruins the carpet. And so uh, when he met with the entire congregation, he told this story and he said, your stated value or your stated belief is that you love children, but your actual belief is that you love carpet. Right? And so our stated beliefs are the things that we say we believe. Our actual beliefs are how we actually engage with the world. And so um, all of these things form our frame as we go through life. If you want to know what your frame is, I would suggest that most likely your frame is your unguarded reaction most of the time. 
It's your unguarded reaction. It might be, we, another way to say it would be, it's your gut level response. And then um, our frames are also heavily influenced and sometimes even controlled by our environments, right? If you're in a dysfunctional, unhealthy family system, that's going to really mess with your frame as you look at life. So we'll come back to all this later. But this morning in the text, we have the nation of Israel has gone out to war, which happens in the summertime. And they have lined up on one side of the Valley of Elah, and the Philistines have lined up on the other side. And as you might imagine, um, this is an environment that uh, is steeped in all kinds of things, all kinds of emotions and experiences. There's the physical discomfort that I would imagine goes with being camped in ancient times in uh, an unshaded, on an unshaded hillside, right? It's also an environment that is steeped in hate, fear, and violence. Right? You have two armies lined up on either side of a valley, and they are not fond of each other, to say the least. The Philistines and the Israelites are going to war, and so as they gather on their respective sides, you can imagine kind of this cauldron of all kinds of negative emotions and strong feelings and, and fear and all kinds of things. And what we read in the text is that this environment starts to have an effect on the nation of Israel. Now, I can almost guarantee you that it was certainly not the intent of the entire Israelite army to be dominated by fear. But the longer they were left steeping in this valley, the less possible it was for them to see anything else. Right? Because what's happening is um, that the entire army was paralyzed, not just by what they saw, which was this great warrior Goliath, described in a way that makes no sense to any of us without going to, you know, some commentaries or whatever to tell us what 50 shekels weighs, right? Or, or what this armor looked like or what we think it looked like. But the, ar the entire army was, not, was paralyzed not only by what they saw, but by, but by what they thought about what they saw. And so the longer this went on, the more paralyzed and fear-filled they became, right? Because this is just dragging on. 40, the text tells us 40 days this has gone on. Morning and night, this giant comes out and taunts this entire army. And they become laser-focused on the presence of Goliath. But even more so, they are influenced by their fear of Goliath. So in walks the shepherd boy, David, who has been anointed king. We covered this in the first sermon. Right? We don't know exactly what Samuel said. We don't know even if David knew that Samuel was anointing him king. The text doesn't tell us that. But David shows up. He's sent as an errand boy from his father to bring his brothers 
supplies. Now, David's imagination, David's thinking, David's frame was not filled by this valley of Elah. David's imagination, David's frame, was framed, was filled by a God who is active and moving in his life. You see, David knew a living God. And that's what we see in the text. David's experience, as you read through the whole chapter of 17, David's experience of God was not abstract. It was not just intellectual assent to a bunch of doctrines. It was actually a lived, experienced faith. It was not something that he simply believed. It was something that um, enveloped his entire life. So if we jump ahead uh, to later in in chapter 17, in verse 34, it picks up, and it says this. David is speaking to Saul, and he says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David's frame is filled with a God who delivers. So he walks into this valley that is steeped and just stinking and reeking with fear and anger and hatred. And what David sees and what his brothers and the army see are two, different, two completely different things. Now, we know the end of the story. God delivers David. David slays Goliath. I will make the point that I would argue that David would never say that he killed Goliath. He would say that God, that God delivered him from Goliath because David's frame was dominated by a living God. Now, you'll notice if you read through this entire story, Saul's response after David gives this really kind of inspiring speech about how God has delivered him from the lion, the bear. David, like, I walked out, I grabbed the lion by the mane and I killed it. You know, that kind of thing. Saul's response is not, oh, okay, well, go ahead. Do your thing. I see that God's with you. No, Saul's response to David's confidence in God is to suggest a technological solution. Armor. Saul says, hey, David, you put on my armor and go out and meet Goliath. Because what do we need when we're presented with that kind of, that kind of huge problem? Well, we need some technology. We need some, um, you know, equipment in order to do what we need to do. And David's like, I don't, you know, David tries it on. It says uh, in verse 38, it says that Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. And thankfully, because David's frame is so steeped in God, he's like, Saul, I can't 
this doesn't work for me, which is an act of courage in itself, right? It's an act of courage in itself to tell the king, well, thanks, king, for, uh, you know, offering me your state-of-the-art armor, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass. David knew who he was. David knew whose he was. Now, the application of this story is a well-worn lesson, right? Underdog, we all love this story, right? It's the underdog story. David goes out, he kills Goliath, and, and the underdog wins, and, and so God is with us even when we're outmanned or outnumbered or overpowered, all that stuff. And that's certainly true. God does deliver. But I think there is some truth here for us and where we find ourselves, both as a church and as individuals. So first, I want to talk about us, the church. And when I talk about us, the church, I'm not just talking about our body here, Kent Covenant Church. I'm talking about the church in a wider sense in America. So if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself part of the church, just, you can just pause at this point and, uh, you know, we'll come back to you in just a minute, all right? So bear with me. So for years, actually for my whole lifetime, I would say, I grew up in the church. I have heard and witnessed us in the church wringing our hands about the condition of our country and how horrible things are and how outnumbered we are and how we're being attacked and on and on and on. My whole life, ever since I can remember, that's the narrative that I have often heard in the church. And what has our response been? Well, our response, I would argue, is dictated by our frame. And our response has been to go to war with culture. Our response, in a large part, especially in the evangelical church, has been to go to war with culture, and the way we do that most specifically, or at least one major part of the way we do that, is by seeking political power. We ally ourselves with certain politicians because we think they're going to do what we want them to do, and that that's what we need in order for God to do what he needs to do. Why do we do that? I would argue we do it because our frame is filled with fear. We are sitting and stewing in the valley of Elah. We're stewing in fear and hatred and violence and anger. But church, here's the thing. Political power is to the church as Saul's armor was to David. It does not fit. It will not get us where we want to go. And in fact, it will lead us, as we have witnessed, places we never intended to go. I'll say that again. Political power is to the church as Saul's weapons were to David. In other words, useless. We have allowed fear to dominate our thinking and our theology and our practice. And we have chosen political weapons instead of remembering 
that we are a resurrection people who serve a living God. If God wanted to save the world through politics, he wouldn't have sent his only son to die at the hands of politicians. We have before us, and I I believe this more today than I ever have, we have before us the greatest opportunity for the church to rise up in over a hundred years. But remember, as we rise, we serve the lamb who was slain. Not political power. I am convinced that the rising will happen through simple acts of radical hospitality, love, and welcome. It will look, it will look, it will look like Jesus more than the religious establishment. You see, part of the problem that we have is that when we take a good, hard, honest look at ourselves, we look like somebody in the Gospels, but it's not who we think it is. As I sit through meeting after meeting with, in our denomination and beyond, I can't help but find myself thinking, well, yeah, we look a lot like somebody in the Gospels. It's the Pharisees. We love our rules. We love our regulations. But I don't see us loving people in the radical way of Jesus. Secondly, now back, now those of you who are not, don't consider yourself church people, we're back to, back to you. Secondly, all of us individually in our own lives find ourselves in a valley of Elah at some point or another. We find ourselves in situations that overwhelm us, that seem like they are too much for us. So the question for us, when we find ourselves in that place, overwhelmed by the circumstances and the situation of our lives, the question for us is, do we see an opportunity for the living God to act through us? Or will we be paralyzed by fear? Do we see an opportunity for God to work through us? Or are we paralyzed by fear? So as I mentioned, oftentimes, I think we hear the story of David and Goliath. It's actually, it's part of our cultural vernacular, right? I mean, watch any sports playoffs, right? It doesn't matter what sport it is. And you hear about the David and Goliath story, right? But I think there's another lesson 
in David and Goliath that we should pay attention to. And it is this. It is be prepared. David had spent years, as we talked about in the first sermon in this series, years being formed in the small things and watching for God to show up. As he, as he spent time by himself being the forgotten one who's out with the sheep, right? You remember when we talked about when David was anointed and Samuel says, well, do you have any other sons? Because none of these are it. And David's father's like, oh, well, yeah, there's the littlest one. He's out tending the sheep. But while David was out tending the sheep, seemingly forgotten by his family, or at very least not paid much attention to, David was paying attention to the small things. When David faced challenges as a shepherd, he did not attribute his success to his marksmanship with the sling or his bravery at grabbing a bear by the hair. He saw in those things God showing up and protecting him. So I want to offer you some small things that you can pay attention to so that as you, when you enter your own valley experience, you might see God rather than be having your frame filled with fear. The first is this. Be in the Word. Read it. Listen to it. Sing it. Be formed by it. I've said this before, and I'll say it probably until you're tired of hearing it. Maybe you already are. But the thing that you listen to most is the thing that's discipling you. If you think that coming and hearing someone preach for 25 to 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is going to out-disciple you when you've filled your frame for the whole week with Fox News or CNN or whoever else, you're wrong. We are discipled by the things we pay attention to. So be in the word. Read it, listen to it, sing it, be formed by it. The second thing, worship. We don't sing to be cool or hip or to sound like K-Love or any of those things. We sing to worship the living God and that singing forms us. It helps us to know and to remember the story. Third thing, and this is so vital, watch and tell. That's the model that David gives us in this story. David comes and he walks into this situation, this seething cauldron of fear, and he tells the story of how God has delivered him from lion and bear over and over again. So David doesn't just walk in and think in himself, yeah, okay, I can handle this situation. God's with me. No, he tells the story. Brothers and sisters, he knew it was God and he told the story. So watch for God at work in your life and tell the story. Or maybe it's just as simple as remembering what it is that God's delivered you from and tell that story. But that, friends prepares us so that when we face challenges, we are not dominated by fear, but instead we are dominated by the actions and the activity of a living God, who's not just an idea we assent to, but who lives and moves and gives us our lives and our being 
and draws us into himself and uses us to further his kingdom. That is my prayer for us, that we would be people whose frames are filled not by fear or anger, but people whose frames are filled with the resurrected Jesus who changes everything and invites us to join him in that work. Amen.